Welcome to the podcast of RUF at Boston University. Um, hello, again. Um, Nathan is in Chicago, if you didn't get the message. Um, so, yeah, so I'm here. You guys have to deal with me tonight. Um, but, what? Don't say that. <laughs> you guys get to deal with me tonight. How about that? Um, yeah, so we're continuing our study of Revelation. And if you were here before, um, Nathan's talked about our attitude coming to Revelation being kind of one of like childlike wonder, like how kids sometimes get Revelation better than adults because adults are always looking for what does every little thing mean? And kids are like, no, this is a great story. And it is. It's a great story. It's a story about God and what he is doing, what he has done, what he will do. And it's true, right? So it's, it's a little bizarre Um, But the things that it symbolizes, the things that it talks about are really true and really good for our life. And so we focused on how it's bringing us hope um, in our daily lives. So hopefully, I know it's brought me hope as I've been listening to Nathan the past few weeks. So hopefully um, tonight will be another night focused on that. So however, um, if you guys have Bibles near you or on your phone, it would be great to have those available. We'll also have some things on the screen. Um... Oh, yeah. <laughs> Got a couple pictures at the beginning. Um, but the passage we come to today, if you just glance over it, doesn't necessarily seem like the most hopeful passage, right? There's a lot of judgment and wrath. Um, and those concepts might make us uncomfortable. We talked about it last week, too. Um, it makes me uncomfortable. But as I walked through the text the past couple weeks and kind of wrestled with it, um, it actually became something that's, like, extremely hope- hopeful to me. Um, it's, it, it brought me a lot of hope, and I hope that it will for you too as we talk about it. We don't want to only read and explore and believe those parts of the Bible that make us feel warm and fuzzy inside. Um, we don't want to just like look through our fingers <laughs> at the TV, you know, and only see the parts that we like. Um, it turns out that Revelation has some things to say that are hard, but they're also really, really good. So you can go to the next. Actually, no, wait. Sorry. I'll cue you. (laughs) Um, So as I was thinking about this idea, uh, the ideas in the story, in the passage today, I was thinking about this book I read a few years ago called Just Mercy. Have you guys ever heard of it or read, seen the movie? Um, So Brian Stevenson wrote it and he started this organization called Equal Justice Initiative. um, And he told the story of this man called, um, named Walter McMillian. And he was an African American man in Alabama who was wrongfully, in the 80s, who was wrongfully convicted and put on death row um, in 1986. And so there's a whole long story. If you want to hear more about it, I can tell you. But um, basically, justice was greatly mishandled in this case. Um, Evidence was ignored, and it was basically swung towards him just because it was convenient. Um, And so Brian Stevenson, who's a lawyer, came and um, met with him and worked for years to get him finally exonerated. there are a lot of people who didn't want him to go free. Um, but eventually, he went free in 1993. So <laughs> these are some of the photos um, of when he went free. And as you can tell, like, he's you know, extremely happy. Like, his family is joyful, big smiles, all of that, which is, is right and good to celebrate this, that he was free. And yet, um, his life, you know, in a sense, had been forever changed. Um, he said um, that his years on death row were traumatic. Like, he talked about 
um, talked about it and said, I've suffered pain, agony, loss, and fear in degrees that I've never imagined possible. I've survived these six long years, but I am a different man. It's just like really like sobering to think about that, right? Even when justice is served or when there's correction to injustice, there's still this like grief and loss that happens. Like the justice that we want to happen is imperfect. We can celebrate the good. Like we can celebrate these smiles. This is good, but we can also acknowledge that what the, the true justice we want is not, not this, not six years lost of a man's life, right? Um, and I think that we're rightly dissatisfied with the limitations of justice of the world. Um, and so I want us to sit in that tonight. FYI, this might be a little bit of a heavy talk, so hopefully we can <laughs> keep it not too, not too dark, but <laughs> um, there's, there's hope, though. Um, because God is just. Um, he, he's just and he's wrathful against evil. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. Um, and that is good news. So this is my ball to catch. Jimmy and I use that phrase a lot. Ball, one thing to take, take back with you. God's just wrath is actually good news. You guys got it. So we're done. Just kidding. <laughs> so to unpack that, we're going to look at why is God's justice and his wrath necessary? Why is it good news? And finally, what it makes a way for. Okay, so why is it necessary? So my quick answer is because evil exists and we can't fix it, right? So we're going to look at the passage and see what kind of evils here. And then we're going to think about our world. Um, and yeah, so let's look at 15, chapter 15. I'm going to read a little bit of that, um, the underlined part. So, then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they, oh, and then I'm going to skip down to verse 5. After this, I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened, and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished." So as we pay attention to this passage, we can see that God is not painted as a psychopath who just enjoys punishing people. Um, just to kind of lay that out, um, Christians, we don't believe that God is a sadist and that he enjoys punishing. And we also shouldn't be asked to enjoy <laughs> punishment, enjoy um, judgment. Um, there's actually a reason, there's a clear reason for judgment and wrath. I'm going to say wrath a lot, so get used to it. <laughs> so the scene here at the beginning of chapter 15 is another one of John's visions. Um, it says like the sea of glass, which is kind of like a callback to chapter 4, which talks about God's throne room. So we're back in God's throne room in this vision. And there's something new happening. We've got these seven angels, seven plagues, which are held in seven bowls. You guys remember how seven is like the number, the completion 
number in the Bible. So this is like a big, big deal. Also, we've had several other cycles of seven in the past, right? So this is like one of the last cycles of seven that's happening in Bible or in Revelation. And so uh, what's this all about? Well, it turns out golden bowls have been mentioned before in chapter five, um, verse eight, which I'll just summarize for you. Um, It says that the prayers of the saints were contained in these golden bowls. And then later, the prayers um, in chapter 6, 10 and 11, we hear what are, the, what are these people praying? And so this is what they're praying. <laughs> How long before you will judge, you, the Lord, will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So they're crying out for justice. Um, and they were told, rest a little longer. So there's a lot of talk about martyrs in Revelation. Um, and that's what this group of people is. People who have been persecuted, who have been killed because they worshipped the true God of the Bible. And there continues to be, like throughout the ages, there continues to be people, right, who oppose Christ so much that they're willing to hurt and kill people who believe in him. Um, It's not something that stopped in the first century. And Revelation shows that, like, these people, they've been crying out to God, not for revenge, but for justice, as I said. And they've been wronged, and it looked like evil was winning, right? So they're calling out to God to be who he promised that he will be, a just judge. But they've been told to wait. Now in 15, we see that in, in these bowls of wrath is God's answer. It's God's answer to their, their, their cry for justice. And to get a further grasp on like the kind of evil that this passage is getting at, um, I don't know if you guys caught, well, you, you haven't read chapter 16 yet, so we'll get to that. But there's a lot of references to the Old Testament, specifically to Exodus, which remember how we said like uh, Revelation can't be understood outside of the Old Testament. So here's another example of that. Um, so Exodus is when God redeemed his people from slavery, right? Ten plagues. So we have seven plagues. We don't have ten. Um, but these ones would complete the wrath of God. So I'm going to read 16, 1 through 9. Um, to you, just so you can get an idea of what's happening here. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went, poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl in the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. And they were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. And it keeps going. We'll look at the other plagues in a little bit. So how does this relate to Exodus? Uh, there's a couple parallels that I think are helpful. Um, so in Exodus, God's people had been enslaved for hundreds of years by the Egyptians. They had lost hope that God knew what was going on, that he was going to save them. Um, but in Exodus 3, it says, God heard their groaning. He remembered his covenant. He, he heard and he saw and he knew. And their, their, their suffering hadn't escaped his notice. Um, just like the suffering of the martyrs in this passage hadn't escaped his notice. Just like the suffering of every person who is calling out to God does not escape his notice. Um, 
In Exodus, God judges Egypt by sending 10 plagues, like I said. Um, and what, what they end up doing is they attack idolatry. They attack these idols that people trusted in. And they show that God is ultimately pow- more powerful than anything else. That his glory is greater. So without getting into too much detail, um, which if you want more detail, I have a book recommendation. But yeah, we can talk about that later. Uh, these first four bowls of God's wrath here, they do the same thing. They expose idolatry, and which is the ways that we trust in things that are, that are created, not the creator, right? Nathan's talked about that the past few weeks. So like good health, for example, like the first bowl, or um, economic security. And let's also notice the people on whom the judgment is poured out. This is where it gets, like, really intense, right? Because it's not just the world that's being hurt. It's actual people. But it says that they have, at every opportunity, spurned spurned relationship with their creator. They've worshipped the beast and its image in 16, too. They've shed the the blood of the saints and prophets. And when given the opportunity, seeing this power, they don't repent of those things. Again and again, we haven't read all of them, but they're gonna keep, it's going to keep saying they haven't repented. Just like Pharaoh, right, who hardened his heart every time God relented from the plague, these people's hearts are closed to the goodness and mercy of God. And I, I think that even in this hour, if they had relented, repented, like, it's in God's nature to show mercy in that moment, to show grace, right? Like, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, um, and it's just a sad reality that there, in Scripture, there are people who will not do that. And Nathan talked about that last time as well. So um, they were given every chance, which is, yeah, really hard. So this passage especially deals with the evil of people persecuting, um, killing um, those who follow Jesus, who know Jesus. Um, but in Scripture, we see like any injustice is a big deal to God. Um, it's, it's really hard. He, he hates to see the innocent punished. He hates to see the guilty go free, right? And um, that happens a lot. <laughs> and so in the Bible, he's constantly caring for and commanding that his people care for the most outcast, the most oppressed people in society, right? He cares for each person affected by injustice today. Um, and he's going to make it right. So um, that leads me to think about, you know, some ways that we feel, um, this injustice that we feel the need for a just judge today. Um, I don't know what comes to mind when I say that for you. Um, We don't like to think of things as evil. (laughs) It's kind of a not really okay word. (laughs) Society, right? You know, evil and good is just kind of like cultural, we think. But there are, like, we know evil when we see it. Like, we we feel it deep down. Um, When we hear about or, or see children being abused. Like that is something that like really just feels terrible and evil to us. Um, I was looking up some other things that came to mind. Apparently um, there's 13% of all college students experience sexual assault. Like that is something that is so wrong, right? Um, We've got other examples. I could just keep going like mass shootings, right? Um, Those are things that honestly make me want to throw up sometimes when I think about them. Um, We've got racially motivated attacks and hate. And then thinking about what's in this passage, like 
there are people who are killed for their faith in Christ. Um, 5,898 in this past year, according to Open Doors. Um, and those are just the ones that they know about, right? That's like feels kind of outside of our experience, but our heart needs to break over these things. Because um, God's does. So that's heavy. And I'm sure there's other things you guys are thinking about too. Um, we need hope if we're going to deal with that. Um, we need to, yeah, we need to know like where's the good, what is God doing um, so that we don't just shut down or so we don't just like despair, right? Um, Brian Stevenson says, hopelessness is the enemy of justice. And that's so right, right? Like when you can't have, when you don't have hope, you have no desire to try and actually do anything good. Um, so we've looked at why wrath is necessary. Evil exists and we can't fix it. We can fix little bits of it, little corners, but we can't take care of it. Um, but okay. What, what about the good news? Why is wrath and judgment good news? Um, so I don't want to assume, um, who's in this room and what your stories are. Many of us might have trouble with this idea of wrath, but some people, um, some people in this room, maybe it might resonate more easily. Like you might have less trouble thinking of God as a judge because you've experienced injustice or you've ex- your family has experienced injustice, right? And I just want to acknowledge that like it is a privilege to not have to long for justice in your own life. Like it's a privilege for us to sit here and, and have an uncomfortable feeling towards justice, right? Because um, that means we haven't been like fully, fully affected by injustice um, as much as some other people have. And so, you know, like Walter McMillian, like in his family, they probably longed for the sheriff who had put him away on like no evidence to have, um, you know, to be fired at the least. He was not. <laughs> he retired in 2019. Anyway, um, and that, that didn't happen, right? And so when we understand injustice, I think we, we understand judgment um, a little bit better. And it's good news to people who have been wronged. But it's only as good as the judge, right? So in Walter's story, his life would have been totally different if the judge and the jury had been just, if they had actually taken all the evidence, if the prosecution and the defense had been all doing justly. Um, so, so wrath is only good news if the, if the judge, the person giving out the, the judgment, is actually a good person, a good God in this case, right? So we're talking about God's holy justice. Um, it's good news, guys. Um, so I'm, I think the next slide, I have a couple different verses together. Yeah, okay. So look at this 15, 3 through 4, and 16, 5 through 7. Um, this is, God is being worshipped. Right. He's being worshipped for his holy justice. Um, these great and amazing deeds, these righteous acts, they include his justice in punishing evil. It's not just um, what we would necessarily turn to immediately to praise God for. It's, it's this, these bowls of wrath that they're praising him for, right? And so why could they praise God this way? Um, they say, like, just are you a holy one. Um, I think holiness is a concept that we need to think about a little bit more often. Um, It means to be completely other, to be set apart. Um, 
and incomparable, incomparable? One of those two. Um, one of the most constant refrains uh, about God's character is that he's holy, holy, holy in scripture, right? And his holiness is essential to his being. It's what makes him him. <laughs> like, it would ma- it's what makes him loving and what makes him good and kind and just. And so if that's true, God can't promote sin. He can't sin himself. Um, he can't even be in the same space as sin, right? And so if that's true, then he must be the only one who can impartially and correctly judge evil and say that is evil, that is good, right? Um, he doesn't have those any secret sins or any um, evil in his heart that's tempting him to not make a right judgment. And so we don't have any authority to judge him because we do have those secret sins. We do have those biases, right? And he doesn't. So we also think about God's wrath. And I think one reason that it makes us uncomfortable is that other people's anger makes us uncomfortable. Our anger makes us uncomfortable, right? Um, But God's wrath isn't like ours, which is good. Our anger is just like a passing mood, right? And God's anger is actually one of his characteristics. It's part of his character to be angry at sin. Um, Our anger flares up when someone inconveniences us or when we get cut off in traffic or when we feel like not respected um, or when someone we love is being hurt. You know, there's lots of different reasons for us to get angry. Um, But uh, God, yeah, Jackie Hill Perry, it's a book I have over here called Holier Than Thou. She talks about God's holiness and she said, wrath isn't a response to God's ego being bruised. You know, it's not that he's a sadist taking pleasure in our pain. Um, It's completely righteous. And I don't fully understand how that can be, but I know that it's true. Um, Our anger often, like, is really hot, and then it just cools down, right? Um, Like the Hulk turning back into, what's his name, Bruce Banner, right? We have this green, rageful side of us, and then we have this, like, frail, apathetic side. Um, Sometimes it can feel that way. And... When the anger is gone, we quickly forget to care or to feel. Um, and sometimes that's good, because sometimes that means you're going to treat the person in front of you better, right? You're going to be kind to them. Other times, our anger just mean, cooling just means that we don't care anymore, um, and we should be caring, you know? And so I think something I've been thinking about a lot with this passage is that, like, there's this connection between wrath and love. We think that the opposite of love is anger. Um, But we see here and also just like in our own experience that they're actually connected in a way. We get angry because we care about something. (laughs) Um, If we didn't care, like we wouldn't have that strong emotional reaction. And God's wrath is based in his love, in his promise-based covenantal love. Remember uh, those saints who were asking God to avenge their deaths um, back in 15 or earlier in the book? Um, and remember in Exodus how the people were crying out to God for, you know, to save them? Um, what happens next in both of those accounts? Like, what is God's response to that? It's, it's wrath and judgment on those who are hurting his kids, right? Sometimes it takes, it's a timing it's not right away but he hears their cries and he saves them um so as you know you probably know nathan and i both love stranger things raise your hand if you love stranger things 
Jimmy, yes. <laughs> um, and as I was thinking about the connection between wrath and love, I thought of the character Eleven. Um, if you've seen it, you probably know. She's kind of hothead. She has an anger issue. Um, and typically when she gets angry, people die. So <laughs> she's definitely not the best example of perfect anger. So we can't draw like a full conclusion as to like, this is what God is like. However, um, the moments of the show that are most impactful and most like redemptive, I think, have to do with her anger. Um, that's where her power comes from, right? When she gets really pissed that like some evil creature in front of her is hurting her friends, that they are going to kill her friends, she finds this power within her to protect them and to like, you know, blow up the Demogorgon or whatever. Um, I, I forgot I didn't actually put a picture of it in there. You guys can imagine. <laughs> um, and, and I think that is like a small picture of how God's anger is fueled by his love. He has promised to love his people. And that means he's going to take out any threats, right? He's not going to let them be hurt, ultimately. So I also wanted to think about, like, as we consider our own anger, especially this anger that results from injustice, when we are hurt, when others are hurt by systems, by people, by whatever. How do we handle that? (laughs) I don't really have like a full like five-step process for you or anything. Um, Just some thoughts. Because I think sometimes it's it's hard to stay, to know like how to handle that and to know that like I don't actually have that much power to change everything that I want to change or emotional energy to change everything. Um, So I don't think that we have to be constantly angry. I think like going to social media, going to the culture around us, we might be given an impression that in order to make a difference, you have to be like overflowing with rage at all times, (laughs) or you have to be like pointing a finger at someone at all times. Um, And I don't, like that's that's pretty exhausting, first of all. And also like our anger is so imperfect, like we're definitely gonna hurt someone when we're angry all the time. (laughs) Um, But I do think that we see that like God is angry at sin and evil. And so it is right for us to feel (laughs) those negative emotions when we are feeling them against something that is wrong, right? So I don't know, it's something I'm working on too, like asking God to help me notice those things that are wrong and help me to care about those things um, that grieve God. Knowing that, you know, our God is, is a holy, just God allows us to have hope right now in this like in-between yucky, we can't actually fix what we want to fix world. (laughs) And it allows us to have a healthy anger at the evil and sin um, and kind of know what to do with that, I guess. Um, My professor in seminary talked about how we all have these like sacred corners. So what he meant by that was an area of wrongness in the world that particularly tugs at your heart as an individual. Um, Maybe it's sex trafficking, you know, maybe it's um, racism to a certain group of people. Um, Maybe it's child abuse, whatever. There's a lot of things wrong (laughs) that we could be, feel especially strongly about. So yeah, like what, what is one of your or what is your corner? You know, we don't all have to fight everything. <laughs> um, 
we don't have to fight the same things. We don't have to change the world. But I think that God does give us these like particular things that we feel strongly about. And that's, that's where we can pray and that's where we can step into or ask God to help us know how to step into those areas to make a difference. Um, this is something that we've talked about in church a few weeks ago, but just like, what do we do when we feel anger? <laughs> just real quick, I think it's really helpful to um, not try to stuff that away, but to actually bring it to God in honest prayer. I don't know if you guys have ever done that when you've been angry, um, but it's all over scripture. It's allowed. It is actually necessary for you to process your emotions. Um, just going to God honestly and saying like, hey, I'm angry about this. I don't know if that's justified or not. I don't know if I should be angry. Um, or I definitely know I shouldn't be angry, whatever it is. Um, help. You know? He loves to answer that prayer. He loves to answer that prayer for help. Um, so God is our holy, just, loving judge and father. And he's, he's hearing our cries. He's hearing the cries of people who are in pain, in oppression. Um, and we've got this picture in Revelation of this, like, final just justice and judgment that's going to happen but like he's not waiting till then to get started he's actually involving all of us in that just like wild all right so finally (laughs) we're getting to our third point um so we said that you know we need we need the wrath of god it's good news and finally what is the purpose of it is we're it's making a way for god's people to be with him so it's accomplishing something um, so we looked at the first four, four bowls of it already, um, but, the, but about the last three, I'm not going to read the whole section, but I'm just going to have it up there. Um, so we have the fifth bowl, sixth bowl, and seventh bowl. Um, so these bowls, to summarize, symbolize God finally once and for all sweeping away evil. Right? So he targets the throne of the beast in, in the, fifth, the fifth bowl, um, the epicenter of cosmic evil. He opens up a battleground for the final spiritual battle to come where he can actually, like, defeat um, evil and Satan once and for all in the sixth bowl. And the seventh bowl is basically, like, a purge of all that is wrong with the world. And it's pictured as these, like, natural disasters. Um, so, so what's God doing here? Um, back in 15, chapter 15, 8, verse 8, it says that the glory of God filled the sanctuary so much that no one could go in. Um, until the plagues were finished, until wrath's, the wrath was poured out. And so the sanctuary is this picture of where God, the Holy One, lives, right? And so what it's saying is that while the wrath is unspent, his people can't live there with him. So this destruction, this pouring out of wrath, is the final step before his people can be welcomed into his house with him. It's kind of like he's cleaning house, right? Like, in, That's probably too trite to say, but... In his goodness, he's making a place for his family um, to come home to. And once that battle is done, once he's victorious, there will be a fresh start for the people of God. We're going to talk more about that later in future weeks, by the way. Um, so there's an, so he's, he's making a fresh start. He's getting rid of the evil in the world. But there's another thing that God did to make a way for his people to come home to him. And it's not explicitly in our passage, but it's important to understand. So looking at 16... 6 um, says this, this wrath is what they deserve. And we already talked about what that means. 
But the angel's talking about those who, like, shed the blood of the saints and prophets. But when I read that, I, like, the first few times I read this, I was, like, almost, like, shivered because it's, like, very, like, very intense. And it reminds me of my own lack of innocence before God, right? Um, Jackie Hill Perry also says, we know almost instinctively that the guilty must be punished until the guilty one is us. This is why, one reason why we might be uncomfortable with this idea of wrath, right? Um, Now, you and I may not have persecuted any Christians. We probably haven't killed any martyrs. Good. Um, But before a holy God, our sin, our turning away from God, our loving of ourselves more than loving of him and others, is just as much reason for punishment. And we have to acknowledge that it's not only people out there that are the problem, right? whose hearts love evil more than good. It's us. It's me. Um, One way this shows up for me is I've been reflecting on how, like, my heart is cold towards people in suffering. Like, it's really easy to read a statistic and be like, oh, that's so sad, and then move on. Or see someone who's struggling on the street and just say, I don't have time for this, and move on, right? Um, My world is so centered around myself. And... That's an offense to God. Like, God is, is loving and completely wants, wants people to know him, right? Um, and my heart is cold a lot of the time. And so we need something outside ourselves to rejuvenate that love, to rejuvenate that love of good and hatred of evil. It's the only way that we're going to care enough to actively work for justice in the world. Um, so, however, in spite of all this, Um, It's not words of condemnation. It's not let them drink blood. It's what they deserve. That we hear from God the Son, Jesus on the cross. It's rather, Father, forgive them. Like, how could he say that? This is the sinless one who's God in the flesh, who is literally forgiving the people who are nailing him to a cross, who've been whipping him, who've been killing him. And it, it extends to us as well. He's saying that because he is absorbing the, has absorbed the full wrath of God on our account. Um, he drank it down to the last drop. And this idea of the bowl of God's wrath could kind of be linked to this idea of the cup of God's wrath. Um, it's what Jesus prayed to be spared from in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? He was on, face down on his, um, in agony, ex- ex- anticipating the full extent of the Father's hatred for evil on him. If you've read Harry Potter or seen the movies, you probably remember the scene um, in, I think it's a sixth book, when Dumbledore, Harry's mentor, and like, you know, the greatest wizard ever, um, chooses to drink this entire bowl of poison so that they can get to this necklace at the bottom that will help them defeat Voldemort, right? Um, It's a pretty intense scene because he tells Harry, you need to like force feed this to me basically, and I'm going to tell you to stop, but like you have to keep making me drink it. Um, and, and it happens like while he's drinking it, it's so, it's causing him so much agony that like he forgets how important it is for him to drink it. And he's just asking Harry to make it stop. And Harry's just like feeding it to him. It's so sad. Um, (laughs) so when I think about this scene, it's like a sacrifice that he's making, right? I think about Jesus on the cross, except that once Jesus began to drink this wrath of God, um, he never once lost his resolve, right? He never turned back. He never um, he, he experienced the full weight of God's holy hatred against sin um, and evil that, that you and I committed. 
that the, like, the, the whole weight of the world. And when he said, um, oh, and, and Hebrews tells us that the reason he did this was for joy, for the joy. That was enough motivator for him to do, to endure death. Um, the joy was knowing that once his wrath was spent, the people would be able to be with him again. His people would be able to be with him again. Um, it's pretty wild that he was thinking about you and me like on the cross, like while he was being rejected by his father. So as we think about judgment, we have to think about the cross. That was where the first act of judgment happened. Jesus had already completely finished God's wrath for his people. When he said, it is finished on the cross, he meant it. There is no more wrath for those who find their home in him. There's none left. Even when we mess up, even when our anger is too much or not enough, even when we have cold hearts towards others, when we're super wrapped up in ourselves, there is no more wrath for us or for you. Instead, there's only tenderness and love and gentleness and complete knowing of you and all that you are and delight. If you can say, I trust in Jesus, I trust that he's enough. So here in Revelation, we see that the rest of God's holy wrath against sin, the rest that wasn't absorbed by Jesus for his people is being spent. And it's on those who have allied themselves with evil, who have continually said no, no, no to God's offers of mercy and grace. And it says, with them, the wrath of God is finished and it is done. So this is looking forward to a time when justice will be complete. Um, when the forces of evil will be just completely gone. And so he's cleared away, right? He's cleared away the rubbish (laughs) uh, with these bulls, and he's defeated evil in the hearts of his people through Christ. Um, And so now we can enter his sanctuary because we can come home to live with him because Jesus has made a way for us to do so. So... um, one last quote from Brian Stevenson. You guys should really read the book. It's really good. Um, he said, The power of just mercy is that it belongs to the undeserving. So the passage we talked about tonight is about God's wrath, yes. But implicitly, it's also about his unexpected, undeserved mercy. Um, not everyone will reject him, right? He is gracious, just like Nathan talked about. He is not coming back until his whole family is here. And so um, he's bringing, bringing many in, so many that we can't number them from all over. <laughs> um, we could never know how many it is. And so that just mercy because of Christ can be yours. So all of us, no matter where we're coming from tonight, whether we believe this is true or not, um, let's run to Jesus together. Let's bring those questions and comments together in discussion groups. Um, and yeah, let's just ask him to help us to learn what this means, just mercy. Like, what does that mean for us in our lives?